Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garde. It's Thursday, April 8th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. First, we discuss the latest in a long series of issues for AstraZeneca's COVID-19 vaccine and its implications for the global pandemic response. Next, the dilemma over compassionate use. We talk with Biogen's former PR chief about the struggle over whether desperate patients should be able to access experimental medicines and how. And lastly, we want you to meet a registered nurse in Boston who is bringing joy and relief to thousands of people by injecting them with the COVID vaccine. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley from STAT. A silver lining of the pandemic was a rapid acceleration of digital health and telemedicine. I'm here with Joanne Saida, the Global Chief Digital Officer of Real Chemistry, a digitally connected global health innovation company. Joanne, Real Chemistry just released a new report that talks about how patients' digital behaviors are changing during this digital health renaissance. What's a key takeaway from that? Patients are now more active than ever in using smartphones and other digital technology in conjunction with qualified HCPs to diagnose, monitor, and treat diseases as they continue to seek new ways to engage within the healthcare system. Thanks, Joanne. To learn more, visit go.realchemistry.com stat. The long-twisting saga of AstraZeneca's COVID-19 vaccine remains unfortunately interesting. The news this week is that European regulators concluded there is, in fact, a link between the vaccine and those vanishingly rare but alarmingly dangerous cases of blood clotting observed in various countries. But the European Medicines Agency stressed again and again that the benefits of AstraZeneca's vaccine still far outweigh the potential safety risks. The question now is basically, what are we supposed to do with this information? So some countries have moved to restrict the use of AstraZeneca's vaccine for younger people who appear to be more susceptible to these rare side effects, and more nations might follow suit. But it's important to remember in all of this that AstraZeneca's vaccine was meant to be the low-cost, easy-to-produce product that would supply much of the global demand for COVID-19 vaccines. And in many low-income countries, they don't currently have the ability to simply pivot given people over to Pfizer or to Johnson & Johnson as might be you know, deemed necessary based on this information. And this underlines a concern that public health experts have consistently expressed. There's a risk that AstraZeneca's vaccine will be perceived as the lesser of those available, one passed up by wealthy nations while being distributed in the global south. And that could create real problems of vaccine confidence in countries where it's the only option. And meanwhile, it's still a mystery whether AstraZeneca's vaccine will make its way to the U.S. Right. So we, we might recall the last uh, spat over the results from AstraZeneca's U.S. clinical trial, where there was a press release and then a later press release. And we probably don't need to get into that. But the take home, at least at this moment, is that there has still not been a submission to the FDA for an emergency use authorization. So we don't have a timeline for when we'll go through the now familiar process of uh, a public hearing of experts and followed by an FDA ruling on that. And what's interesting, at least in terms of timing in the U.S., is that while the U.S. has secured some 300 million doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine, it's not clear when they might be able to pull the trigger on actually distributing it. And then waiting in the wings, we may recall Novavax, 
a company with a different kind of vaccine that had some success in a large trial in the UK. They've already concluded enrollment in their US trial. That was in the last week of February. And they're expecting interim data of their own really any day now. If you look back at what they've said, the interim analysis of that study would take place once there were 72 observed cases of COVID-19. And as I said, you know, the enrollment has been wrapped up for almost two months now, and we've seen the pace of infection across the United States. One would assume those 72 cases would accrue relatively rapidly. So it sets up this situation where the U.S. both has what seems to be a pretty good supply of vaccines from other manufacturers, might get Novavax data before, frankly, before the week is out, before the month is out. And thus, you know, we don't know how these timelines will work out, but there's a possibility that when the FDA is considering the AstraZeneca vaccine, it will already know at least the interim headline data from the Novavax trial. And so, you know, when you factor all of these concerns about the safety of AstraZeneca's vaccine in with the fact that here's this other one that is, you know, maybe months away from being ready for distribution, I guess it just further clouds the future of, of this vaccine in the United States, whether it will ever, in fact, um, receive authorization here. I wonder if you guys, if either of you guys have a feeling about this, but like what happens if the FDA just decides not to approve the AstraZeneca vaccine here? Like, again, like you said, Damien, we probably don't need the vaccine here in the United States. We've got a lot of supply of the existing vaccines. But what would a, what kind of signal might like not approving the vaccine here, send to, as, as Meg, as you said, to like, you know, other countries, you know, particularly in the global South, where, you know, that vaccine is sort of being counted on. You know, it would be a, f a much more concrete step in the direction the U.S. already seems to have taken on this vaccine. All along, as other countries have given it the green light and it started to be distributed widely around the rest of the world, the U.S. has said, no, we're waiting on our trial to see how well this vaccine works and to see its safety. And of course, when it had that safety pause uh, during the phase three trials, it was much longer in the United States than it was elsewhere. And then once we saw the phase three results from the UK and Brazil, here in the US, Monsef Slawi from Operation Warp Speed noted those wouldn't be enough data for this vaccine to get approval here. Um, of course, deferring to the FDA on that, but that obviously is clear. Um, and so it would definitely be a signal that the U.S. is saying this isn't a good enough vaccine for us. So, of, of course, that could affect confidence around the world. Um, but there's another problem beyond that, even you know, taking the FDA's thoughts on this vaccine itself out of it. The fact that Emergent Biosolutions, which is the contractor for both AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson, has now run afoul of regulators and now has uh, been ordered to stop making the AstraZeneca vaccine and to only make the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, that puts the AZ vaccine into some peril um, here in the U.S. too, because that was the only plant in the U.S. making AstraZeneca's drug substance for the vaccine. And so they're supposed to find another location. But as we've been seeing this entire time, it's not as if there's tons of excess vaccine manufacturing capacity in the United States. J&J &J has partnered with Merck now to help it make more of its vaccine. And so 
it's not clear that vaccine is going to be made here in the U.S. And and what does that mean um, for its supply around the world? This is a vaccine that is being counted on uh, in many countries around the world. And so there are multiple problems there, guys. And we haven't even talked about the emergent side of this, which has just been bonkers over the last week, too. <laughs> yeah, I, I was gonna I was gonna say emergent has not had a very good week. No, <laughs> yeah, terrible, horrible, no good, very bad week for emergent. We had emergent CEO on CNBC on Thursday of last week and asked him about the multiple reports that there was contamination of the J&J vaccine with some part of the AstraZeneca vaccine. And he outright denied that that's what happened. Uh, It isn't the case or wasn't the case where an ingredient from one vaccine contaminated or impacted the other. It was more simply the fact that a one production run, one batch of product uh, was determined to be inconsistent with our quality specifications. But guys, we heard directly from the White House this week, both from Andy Slavitt at the White House COVID response briefing and from Jen Psaki, uh, the White House press secretary, that in fact, it was cross-contamination. And then the New York Times, in a series of investigative reports, has revealed that what seemed to have happened is that a an emergent um, employee walked from the AstraZeneca side of the plant to the J&J side of the plant without showering or taking other precautions and brought some of the virus used to make the AZ vaccine over to the J&J side, thus ruining up to 15 million doses of the J&J vaccine. And now, guys, we're hearing about states getting less of the J&J vaccine than they expected. Some reports are tying that to the problems at the emergent plant um, because it has not gotten FDA authorization to release lots of doses it's already made. So it's just a bit of a mess right now. The person not showering and spreading virus is such a cringy but wonderful detail. <laughs> Got to take your viral shower. Take yeah. a shower, guys. Take a shower. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that's fascinating to me about Emergence, very terrible week of uh, public relations, is that most people probably had never heard of the company. It's it's part of this sizable and very important, but oft overlooked because it's kind of boring subsection of the pharma industry, which is all of the companies that do the hard stuff um, that you don't really talk about, the manufacturing, the putting things in vials. The likes of Pfizer and AstraZeneca, they're very, very large, but they devote a lot of their money and capacity into the really hard process of developing and inventing new drugs. And quite often the manufacturing is laid off to these contractors. And they usually kind of work unseen until, frankly, something like this happens. And so Emergent Biosolutions is now among the more famous companies in the United States. And I imagine that they find that regrettable considering the means by which it came about. Yeah, you know, it's very much like infrastructure, right, Damien? I mean, you know, we don't really think about bridges until they fall down, you know, and we don't really think about emergent until a person doesn't take a shower. Lisa Stockman Moriello's story is a heartbreaking one. Diagnosed suddenly with a fast-moving form of ALS, her doctor identified an experimental drug that might help her, but she can't get access. She was diagnosed just weeks after a clinical trial closed enrollment, and the company that makes the drug, Biogen, has repeatedly denied requests for compassionate use or to enroll her in an expansion of the trial. It's also a familiar story. Compassionate use offers a way for patients to access unapproved drugs outside of clinical trials, but only if the companies developing them agree. And when they don't, for any number of reasons, they can face tremendous pressure on social media. 
Dan McIntyre was in that firing line almost a decade ago at the very company now under pressure to give Stockman Moriello its ALS drug. And in a piece this week for the Timmerman Report, he noted, and I quote, compassionate use policy has everything we need except policy and compassion. Dan joins us now. Dan, welcome to The Read Out Loud. Thank you, Meg. Thanks, Adam and Damien, too. So we should start out by saying, you know, as you disclose in the piece, you've known Lisa Stockman Moriello for 30 years, and she spent her career in communications on behalf of the biopharma industry as well. And you say that you know she doesn't want her life to be seen as more important than others in her circumstances, but that as things stand now, it appears to be valued less. So what do you think Biogen should do here? Oh, well, in, in my view, given the circumstances, uh, I think they should find a way to do this. They're in a real dilemma. I mean, they're a pilot without a navigator. Um, they uh, There's very little policy guidance that's available to them. You know, we had the 21st Century Cures Act requires them to make a public statement, but it's silent on what, where, and how that should happen. The right to try legislation, which you'd think might be a, provide some guidance, um, actually affords protection from liability for companies that say no. So the incentive has been to lay low, say no when asked, and hope it doesn't stir up a pot of community outrage. So Dan, you were at the helm of Biogen's communication department in 2012 and 2013 when it was developing its last big drug for ALS, and and that drug ultimately failed, um, unfortunately, uh, in phase three studies. What did you experience in terms of compassionate use requests that let you know leading up to that phase three result? Well, there were requests for the drug outside of the clinical trial. Uh, very few, I, I I would say, but. When we went into that phase three trial, we were in the process of communicating. We were listening first, um, trying to understand what the concerns and the world views were of the people who were affected by the disease and why they held their beliefs. Um, then we went through an iterative process talking with the, with the scientific advisors and with community advocacy, mostly advocacy organizations. Um, to to decide whether it was a good thing to do, and if so, how would we structure it in a way that would be manageable for the company and acceptable to the community? Um, we wound, we decided at that time um, that we would wait until the th the phase three trial was done. You know, are there good reasons for companies not to give patients drugs under compassionate use? I mean, walk us through what companies go through in these deliberations. First of all, there has to be a, an adequate supply. And for different companies, that could be a, 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 a binding constraint. Um, small companies, pre-commercial companies, it has to be, you have to produce this stuff. It has, they have to be able to distribute it. Um, I think the side effect profile um, um, plays into it. There, the funny thing about it is companies are really well-versed in the reasons to say no, and, and there are many. The challenge is deciding when, on balance, those reasons just aren't good enough. You know, I live by a maxim that yes, if beats no because every time. They have to decide what they believe is the right thing to do and then stick to that. 
So in the case of Lisa Stockman Moriello, she's a well-connected patient with decades of working on behalf of the industry um, and has been able to make more inroads with this campaign than maybe many others might have been able to as a result of that. I was curious, what does this say about the equity of how compassionate use actually works right now? Yeah, I think you get to the crux of the problem. Once you pass the threshold question of supply, then you have to, to put together a defensible plan for dealing with it once you've achieved that. In this case, you know, you'd probably need to limit distribution to clinical investigators uh, because they're most knowledgeable of in patient selection. They're best qualified to administer and monitor care. They're going to be most sensitive to safety signals, and they're going to be best able to prevent abuse. The second one uh, is, and there, and then there will be patient characteristics as well. Um, you need to make sure that the factors are clinically relevant, that they're based on the best knowledge available. And the investigators, in the investigator's judgment, they should have the highest chance of benefit. And Lisa's doctor um, actually made those calls. Then to your point, which I really think is critical, is allocation based on principles of justice, I'll say. It's not that you're trying to find a method that's just. You're trying to find one that's not unjust uh, because these are really, uh, th these are impossible questions. So there are inferior methods of allocation, ability to pay, social status, power and influence, and technical savvy. Um, and they should be rejected. And I think Lisa was sensitive to that because the, uh, she has said uh, more than once that she doesn't want to jump the line. She would be happy to be randomized just like everybody else in the trial, in which case you'd be able to honor the sacrifice that they make and, and keep faith with, faith with them. I would say that's, prob that's probably what I would rec recommend. So, Dan, in writing about Lisa's case, you note that the compassionate use issue has been caught in a cycle of what you said, what you described as outrage and amnesia um, for diseases from cancer to HIV and now more recently rare disorders. Uh, I wonder, how does the industry break the cycle and create a policy system that can enable access while not jeopardizing drug trials? I think we're starting to see it. I do think it has to be done on a collective basis because the way, the way it stands right now is that you have these eruptions and, uh, it, and as I said, it's like a game of hot potato where it's always somebody else's decision. Um, but we're going to see this more and more as the research narrows to more rare and serious diseases as communication technology continues to, to build and as expectations among patients and society at large uh, start to change. It's not just that there are no right answers, that every answer is wrong in one way or another. And I think it's important for Biogen in this case and for the industry in general to decide how they want to be wrong. Because right now, the clinical trial landscape risks becoming sort of a Hunger Games sequel, where you where you start to see these these coalitions pop up. I'll say one thing about Lisa's about the, the friends of Lisa. She didn't do this. This was a group of people who were who spontaneously coalesced around this. She just happens to be um, to have a, a background where the people know how to to do to run a campaign. 
And it says a lot about her as a human being that people love her so much that they're willing to, to take risks uh, like this to do it. So we checked in with Biogen this morning about the latest on Lisa's request, and they noted that she shared on Facebook a note she received yesterday from Biogen CEO Michelle Vunatsis, where he said, quote, I asked my team to look into your request and similar requests we've received from other patients as well. I follow up with the team every day. While there is no guarantee for the outcome you're looking for, we are doing our best to make sure we are exploring all possible options. So that seems to be the latest. Dan, does that make you think that Biogen might find a way to get her the drug while not sacrificing the integrity of the clinical trial program? And I guess I'm wondering, I mean, what does it say when you see these companies say, no, 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 you know, we've conferred with bioethicists, we've tried to figure this out, we absolutely can't do it, and then they flip-flop, they change, they change their course. I mean, it would be great to have a good outcome for Lisa and not sacrifice the trial, but why can't they have figured that out already from the beginning if that's the way they're going to go? Well, I think that's the challenge, is that the, I, there are a couple of things you raised that I think are important. One is that the, the first request from her doctor, who's a clinical investigator for, for Topherson, so he knows the drug, he made the, he made the call, he requested compassionate use. That was more than two months ago. And the, um, they're not going to learn anything today that they didn't know yesterday or last week. And, and that's, I've, I have sympathy for them because scientists tend to want to find an answer. And that's a futile effort here. And the saddest part is that, that, that this burden is squarely on the CEO. The decision will be part of his professional and, and his personal legacy. And there's no, no one will really be able to tell him what or why to act, but they can tell him how. I think the other is when you, you asked about the, the note yesterday, um, I think they risk and they're giving the impression that they're deciding by not deciding, you know, because for someone in Lisa's position, ALS in general, this particular mutation in particular, they don't have time. So I, th I think my advice, I mean, they're not asking my advice, but it, but it would be to make a decision s soon now, because if the community thinks they're running out the clock, um, that would be a worst case. Dan, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Damien. Thanks, Adam. And thank you, Meg. Um, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to talk to you about this. It's not only important, but it's really urgent. And I think it has implications for the, for the industry and more important for patients and families who are really counting on the industry to help their lives. So, Meg, Damien, I have some really good news to share. Uh, I got my first COVID shot this week. Yay! <laughs> I mean, that, that's exactly how I felt, too. You know, I, I have to say, it was a very stress-relieving, joyful experience. You know, and I, this is going to sound corny and cliched, but, you know, I, I actually really felt like this big weight was lifted off my shoulders as I was getting this injection. So uh, I want to send out a big thanks to the folks at Tufts Medical Center which is here in Boston, which is where I was vaccinated. You know, and what struck me 
was that there is probably no better, more satisfying job right now than the people who are administering COVID vaccine shots. You know, I said this to the nurse who vaccinated me, you know, what an amazing feeling it must be to bring, you know, this relief, this joy uh, to people who were sitting in those chairs. And, you know, she agreed 100%. So with that in mind, we were curious, you know, in depth, what is it like to be the injector of COVID vaccines, the deliverer of hopefully so much happiness and relief to people? So joining us today is Jessica Levine. Jesse is a registered nurse in Boston and a recent graduate of the nursing program at Simmons University. And appropriate to this conversation for the past month, she has been working at a COVID vaccine clinic in Boston. Jesse, welcome to the Read Out Loud. Hi, thank you so much for having me here. So I should say full disclosure here, uh, Jesse is a friend of my daughter. So anyway, just wanted to put that out there. Um, but bringing you into the conversation, Jesse, you know, maybe, so tell us, how does it feel to be vaccinating people with the COVID vaccine? It's really, really cool because it's one of the nurses pointed out to me that we're part of something historical that someday, many, many years, hopefully many, many years from now, someone will say like, oh, there was the COVID pandemic and we'll be able to say, I was part of helping end that. And it's definitely, hopefully also a once in a lifetime thing. So what, you know, for people who like me spend a short amount of time getting the vaccine and then are encouraged to go on our way, what is a typical workday like for you, the person who's, who's putting the needle in the arm? So where I work, we have days of 10 hour shifts. And generally at my location, we have almost a thousand appointments a day. And there are usually around 10 to 12 vaccinators and so it can get pretty chaotic. It's a lot of answering questions and telling people that this is going to help them and that this is really a move in the right direction. So those numbers are just crazy. You're working a 10-hour day, essentially. You're one of 10 to 12 vaccinators at a site doing 1,000 shots a day. So you're doing like 100 shots yourself. I mean, that's 100 people that you're helping protect against this horrible virus. I mean, I can only imagine what that feels like for you. What does that feel like? very happy. Everybody's happy to see us, which in nursing can be a pleasant difference and a pleasant surprise. <laughs> We've had a lot of emotional patients come in telling us, I haven't gone outside in almost a year, or I, or I haven't done anything with other people, or I haven't seen my kids or my parents in almost a year, but now I know that I can see them and we can all be safe. And that's something that just makes me really happy. So what's the most striking or out there unexpected question or concern that's been raised to you these past couple of weeks? Oh my gosh, there's a lot of them. And one that always gets us is that for some reason, we'll explain to people that it, that it's like a flu shot and it goes in your arm. And then we'll say like, okay, you can take your sweater off. And a lot of people seem to ask if they need to take their pants off. <laughs> and we're very like, no, 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 no. Please keep your pants on. We're just doing it in your arm. No need to do that. And the majority of the, the vaccinators at our site are young women. And so we're all just kind of like, no. <laughs> are they joking? Are they like really think they have to like get naked to get a shot? But it comes off kind of creepy. But I think other people are serious. <laughs> and I think, again, it's because there's a lot of weird information about there of it can be done this way or it can be done that way. <laughs> I see. So maybe they wonder where they're supposed to get the shot. <laughs> so... 
I have not been able to get a vaccine yet. Um, I'm spending a few months in California, and um, people my age don't get eligible until April 15th. So I'm counting the days. But I, I also then don't really know what this is going to be like. Tell me some of the do's and don'ts for people going to get vaccinated. Like, do come prepared with XYZ. Don't hug your vaccinator. Like, what should we know? Is that a is that a no no? Probably. I wanted I wanted to hug my vaccinator. I I I didn't, but I wanted to. So definitely, if you're going to get your vaccine, wear a short sleeve shirt or a tank top because we like to get to your upper shoulder. And when people wear um, long sleeve shirts or hefty button downs, it's a little hard getting there, and we have to have them take their whole shirt off. I also would say that. While you don't want to hug your vaccinator, definitely uh, like telling them that you're appreciative is really great to hear. And it's always nice. Sometimes people will give us a card just saying thank you or bring us in some cookies. <laughs> um, one thankful patient made us all scrub caps. And so that was really nice. And so those little bits just mean a lot because those days do get very long and repetitive. Adam, did you bring cookies? <laughs> I didn't bring any cookies, but I should have I mean, for the second, you know what, for the second, for the second injection that I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to bring cookies. That's a good <laughs> idea. Uh, so, so, so Jesse, you know, you obviously work, these are really long hours you're working, you know, you're, you're working full time and I'm sure like, you know, during the day it's, it's really hard, exhausting, but I wonder, you know, have you had any time to reflect on this job and, and maybe, you know, what th thinking about like what you'll take away from this experience? Yeah, so I've definitely been doing a lot of reflection, especially like seeing how now people like me and like vaccination centers like the one I am ha have allowed my family to get vaccinated and my friends to get vaccinated. Just thinking about that and to be part of something like that just feels like so cool. That one of the biggest things that I love about nursing and one of my biggest draws to nursing is that when I care for others and care for patients, help them get better and do whatever they need. I'm part of something bigger than myself. And so I felt that by vaccinating, I'm definitely part of something bigger than me and bigger than this because it's leading to a greater good. Well, Jesse, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank, thanks, Jesse, for coming. And, and, and congratulations. And thank you for what you're doing. Thank you so much for having me. Quick note to correct something from last week's episode. I misspoke when I said we now have six-month follow-up data on J&J's vaccine. Of course, it's Pfizer's vaccine for which we have that information. Thank you to all the careful listeners who pointed that out. And with that, that does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Bonato and Alyssa Ambrose, and our executive producer is Rick Burke. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and what kind of cookies Adam should bake for the people who give him his second shot. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.